Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we are back. We're doing it again. Doing it again. Uh, you keep making me wait for it, and I hate it. I hate it. I hate that you're making me wait for it. But that being said, this is <laughs> this is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we are going to launch right into the last chapter of Black Reconstruction in America. Chapter 17, the propaganda of history. How the facts of American history have, in the last half century, been falsified because the nation was ashamed. The South was ashamed because it fought to perpetuate human slavery. The North was ashamed because it had to call in the black man to save the Union, abolish slavery, and establish democracy. What are American children taught today about Reconstruction? Helen Boardman has made a study of current textbooks and notes these three dominant theses. One, all Negroes were ignorant. All Negroes were ignorant of public business, citation. Although Negroes were now free, they were also ignorant and unfit to govern themselves, citation. The Negroes got control of these states. They had been slaves all their lives and yet were so ignorant they did not even know the letters of the alphabet. Yet now they sat in state legislatures and made the laws, citation. In the South, the Negroes who had so suddenly gained their freedom did not know what to do with it, citation. In the legislatures, the Negroes were so ignorant that they could only watch their white leaders, carpetbaggers, and vote A or no, as they were told. Citation. Some legislatures were made up of a few dishonest white men and several Negroes, many too ignorant to know anything about lawmaking. Citation. Two, all Negroes were lazy, dishonest, and extravagant. These men knew I, not... I, I want to point out, too, because oh, yeah. it, it may be confusing when we're going citation, citation, citation. Two is the second thesis. Maybe we should say that more clearly, because it, 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 it probably needs to be spoken more than read in that sense. Perfectly fine. Two. Number two. Yeah. Second thesis. All Negroes were lazy, dishonest, and extravagant. These men knew not only nothing about the government, but also cared for nothing except what they could gain for themselves. Citation. I'm going to stop listing the citations. Legislatures were often at the <laughs> These mercy are all of, citations. There are citations behind every one of these quotes. Legislatures were often at the mercy of Negroes, childishly ignorant, who sold their votes openly and whose loyalty was gained by allowing them to eat, drink, and clothe themselves at the state's expense. Some Negroes spent their money foolishly and were worse off than they had been before. This assistance led many freedmen to believe that they need no longer work. They also ignorantly believed that the lands of their former masters were to be turned over by Congress to them and that their former masters were to be turned over by Congress to them and that even every Negro was to have his allotment, 40 acres and a mule. Thinking that slavery meant toil and that freedom meant only idleness, the slave, after he was set free, was disposed to try out his freedom by refusing to work. They began to wander about, stealing and plundering, and one week, in a Georgia town, 150 Negroes were arrested for thieving. Thesis 3. Negroes were responsible for bad government during Reconstruction. Foolish laws were passed by black lawmakers. The public money was wasted terribly, and thousands of dollars were stolen straight. Self-respecting Southerners chafed under the horrible regime. In the exhausted states, already amply punished by the delegation of war, by the desolation of war, the rule of the Negro and his unscrupulous carpetbagger and scalawag patrons was an orgy of extravagance, fraud, and disgusting incompetency. The picture of Reconstruction, which the average pupil in these 16 states receives, is limited to the South. The South found it necessary to pass black codes to control 
to the for the control of the shiftless and sometimes vicious freedmen. The Freedmen's Bureau caused the Negroes to look to the north rather than to the south for support, and by giving them a false sense of equality did more harm than good. With the scalawags, the ignorant, and the non-property holding, Negroes under the leadership of the carpetbaggers engaged in a wild orgy of spending in the legislature. The humiliation and distress of the Southern whites was in part relieved by the Ku Klux Klan, a secret organization which frightened the superstitious blacks. Grounded in the elementary and high school teaching, an American youth attending college today would learn from current textbooks of history that the Constitution reorganized sla- recognized slavery, that the chance of getting rid of slavery by peaceful methods was ruined by the abolitionists, that after the period of Andrew Jackson, the two sections of the United States had become fully conscious of the conflicting interests, two irreconcilable forms of civilization, in the North, the Democratic, in the South, a more stationary and aristocratic civilization. He would read that Harriet Beecher Stowe brought on the Civil War, that the assault on Charles Sumner (laughs) was due to his coarse invective against the South Carolina senator, and that Negroes were the only people to achieve emancipation with no effort on their part. That Reconstruction was a disgraceful attempt to subject white people to ignorant Negro rule, and that according to a Harvard professor of history, the italics are ours, legislature expanses were grossly extravagant. The italicized colored members in some states engaging in a Saturnalia of corrupt expenditure. That's in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Is the citation there? Jesus by the way, Christ. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that's <laughs> and that's broken away from the the thesis citations, and I think the last citation for a while. But that that's pretty damning of a citation there. And yeah, I mean that. Already kicking right off to, to a history and, and propaganda and how furiously racist it is, right? Everything. Oh, the stupid, ignorant, greedy, freeloading, lazy Negroes were freed by white people. And and it was their stupid ignorance that that made them worse. They were better off as slaves and, and should have left it that way. And they would have been freed anyway. And just just the myriad of racist lies piled in here. And, and look how quickly that dog piled. And these are the prevailing narratives just grotesque shit yeah um in other words yeah in other words he would in all probability complete his education without any idea of the part which the black race has played in america of the tremendous moral problem of abolition of the cause and meaning of the civil war and the relation to which reconstruction had to democratic government and the labor movement today Herein lies more than mere omission and difference of emphasis. <laughs> Again, I like how the voice is like, this isn't just a subtle little lie, like a wink, wink, kernel of truth shit. It's whole cloth racist crap. Um, the treatment of the period of Reconstruction reflects small credit upon American historians as scientists. God damn, <laughs> go after him, Du Bois. Uh, we have too often a deliberate attempt so to change the facts of history so that the story will make pleasant reading for Americans. The editors of the 14th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica asked me for an article on the history of the American Negro. From my manuscript, they cut out all my references to Reconstruction. I insisted on including the following statement. White historians have ascribed the faults and failures of Reconstruction to Negro ignorance and corruption. But the Negro insists that it was Negro loyalty and the Negro vote alone that restored the South to the Union, established the new democracy, both for white and black, and instituted the public school. 
This the editor refused to print, although he said the article otherwise was in my judgment and in the judgment of others in the office, an excellent one, and one which with it seems we may all be well satisfied. I was not satisfied and refused the article to appear. I like how this was a big reveal for Du Bois. Like, this is fucking <laughs> personal. That's that's awesome. Um Call them the fuck out. Good Lord. Uh, War and especially civil strife leave terrible wounds. It is the duty of humanity to heal them. It was therefore soon conceived as neither wise nor nor patriotic to speak of all the causes of strife and the terrible results to which sectional differences in the United States had led. And so, first of all, we minimize the slavery controversy, which convulsed the nation from the Missouri Compromise down to the Civil War. On top of that, we passed by Reconstruction with a phrase of regret or disgust. But these are reasons of courtesy and philanthropy sufficient to denying truth. If history is going to be scientific, if the record of human action is going to be set down with that accuracy and faithfulness of detail, which will allow it to use its measuring rod and guiding post for future nations, there must be set some standards of ethics in research and interpretation. I Real quick, just pause here of what's been said so far, because good Lord, this this, this chapter's ripe. Um, and drawing, again, within the same cause and parallels, right? Because this is still something you, you see with Reconstruction, right? Reconstruction is looked back as a failure or, or as yes. the bad times. I mean, and, and that's a very much a, a racist thing, right? Um, you get all all of the, the, the tropes and the, the narratives and the lost cause shit um, from the, the Confederate apologist. But you also see the same phenomenon to where you know it's it, as soon as things go to print you can have all the truth in the world you can have all the experts in the world they could be very good experts but it's not just going to be their biases it's not going to be something just casually omitted like we think with propaganda and stuff that's included right there's stuff with a kernel of truth there's stuff that's just mistranslated there's stuff that's casually omitted and then there's very very purposeful to massage their feelings straight up mischaracterizations and you see this with foreign policy propaganda you see this with propaganda against ideologies you see this with propaganda against current and former uh liberatory leaders um you know inclusive of like say malcolm x right um you get this in propaganda with movements like defund the police. You get this in propaganda against other, you know, race and class based structures like, like homelessness and houselessness. And we would talk about the border crisis in in the last uh, chapter and, and, and just the very thought of calling it a border crisis, you know, um, instead of calling it the plight, the American caused plight of Haitian people, um, climaxing at a violently enforced American border. It's a border crisis, and it only exists not not for the months it existed beforehand, but now that we have to see it. You know, um, you see this all the time. It's it's a very deliberate bias, and you get it in news, you get it in media, uh, in media like you know stories and movies and and things like that. You get it in the history books. You get it in how it's taught in schools. And as we learned in this book, the the single greatest lasting accomplishment. Primarily one of the best tools of liberation, not the best tool of liberation uh, for black people in, in America is education. And we've talked about how that reflects, you know, the, the literacy drives and all of the socialist revolutions and decolonial revolutions around the world. And yet within American schools, from the Pledge of Allegiance to the A history that's taught 
to the racist structures and what is known as a school to, to prison pipeline, um, even with that truth, even with the fact that it would be horribly detrimental, um, a, you know, immaterial, ahistorical and counter revolutionary to oppose the public schools that, you know, people in during Reconstruction bled and died for. Uh, and that was the true source of black liberation. They they become a source of propaganda with with this kind of thing, right? It's not just accidental omission. It's huge swaths of purposeful omission or purposeful mischaracterization or purposeful a history. And because you can find a way to cite it, or because you can tell it narratively enough and show your expertise and wave your expertise around and not get questioned, it just becomes the truth to people. Exactly. Um. If, on the other hand, we are going to use history for our pleasure and amusement, keep going to Boyce, uh, for inflating our national ego and giving us a... F- <laughs> that sense is really making me think of the, the World War II revisionism now. Um, and giving us a false but pleasurable sense of accomplishment, then we must give up the idea of history either as a science or as an art using the results of science and to admit frankly that we're using a version of historic fact in order to influence and educate the new generation along the way we wish American exceptionalism in a nutshell right there. Um, Shining beacon on the hill. We're the beacon. We're the beacon of LGBT rights and and anti-racism and feminism. And this is why we've got to intervene in those again, holy, holy way to speak to orientalism and other phenomenon in there too i mean just just this is just so ripe to the bullshit we wade through daily um it is propaganda like this that has led men in the past to insist that history is lies agreed upon and to point out the danger in such misinformation is indeed extremely doubtful if any permanent benefit comes to the world through such actions. Nations reel and stagger on their way. They make hideous mistakes. They commit frightful wrongs. They do great and beautiful things. And shall we not best guide humanity by telling the truth about all of this, so far as the truth is ascertainable? Here in the United States, we have a clear example. It was morally wrong and economically retrogressive to build human slavery in the United States in the 18th century. We know that now perfectly well, and there were many Americans north and south who knew this and said it in the 18th century. Today, in the face of the new slavery established elsewhere in the world and under other names and guises, we have to emphasize this lesson of the past. Moreover, it is not well to be recited in describing that past. Our histories tend to discuss American slavery so impartially that the that in the end, nobody seems to have done wrong and everybody was right. Slavery appears to have been thrust upon unwilling, helpless America while the South was blameless in becoming its center. The difference of development North and South is explained as a sort of working out cosmic, social, and economic law. I fucking love Du Bois. Du Bois God is damn. so... This I'm going to miss this motherfucker. It, this, yeah, I, I, I'm going to miss this so much because good, good God. I mean... Th- I love how he's talking about that because he's talking about history and racism. But I mean, we know how much the roots of this show, like how much we've talked about our, our, our love for like say citations needed and stuff. And, and every form of propaganda that, that helps us puff ourselves up and feel good about ourselves is, is in here, right? Anytime people want to stump for American government or the FBI or the CIA, they want to, they want to say, you know, crack wasn't something that the the uh, cia released in, into american streets through skid row they 
you know, want to say the American police didn't directly descend from slave patrols or, you know, any of this racist stuff, too, about like people need to pick themselves up from their bootstraps and, and you know, uh, or, or the, the really racist thing. Right. Haven't they done enough? Haven't we given them enough? <laughs> they want something else again. Like, yeah, they never got the equality, dude. Um, you know, I mean, all of this stuff is just it's it's so encapsulated so well in what what Du Bois is talking about, right? And, and, and the racist American mythos and, and the harms it causes in all of its its forms and manifestations of oppression. Yep. Uh, one reads, yeah, uh, one reads, for instance, Charles and Mary Beard's Rise of American Civilization with a comfortable feeling that nothing right or wrong is involved. And, and I'd be remiss if I wasn't mentioning, of course, the, the actual settler colonialism as America itself, uh, the the backwardsness or whatever or savagery or whatever disgusting word people want to use for indigenous cultures, even though democracy weirdly popped up in the United States after not existing in in Europe for so long since like Greece, ancient Greece, uh, and and reflected explicitly cited the Iroquois Confederacy and, and reflected things like the Iroquois Confederacy and the Confederate structures um, of the Aztecs and, and and things like that. Right, just total weird coincidence. I mean, all of this stuff is, is I don't know, it, it's all bubbling to the surface when I'm reading this chapter. This chapter is ripe. I'm sorry, it's just, it's just ripe. Um, <laughs> Manufacturing and industry develop in the north. Agrarian feudalism develops in the south. They clash as winds and waters strive, and the stronger forces develop the tremendous industrial machine that governs us so magnificently and selfishly today. Yet in the sweeping mechanistic interpretation, there is no room for the real plot of the story, for clear mistake and guilt of building a new slavery for the working class in the midst of a fateful experiment in democracy, for the triumph of sheer moral courage and sacrifice in the abolition crusade, and for the hurt and struggle of degraded black millions in their fight for freedom and their attempt to enter democracy. Can all this be omitted or half-suppressed in a treatise that calls itself scientific? Or to come nearer to the center and climax of this fascinating history, what was slavery in the United States? Just what did it mean to the owner and the owned? Shall we accept the conventional story of the old slave plantation and its owner's fine aristocratic life of cultured leisure? Or shall we note slave biographies like those of Charles Ball, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, and Frederick Douglass? The careful observations of Olmsted and the indictment of Hinton Helper? No one can read that first thin autobiography of Frederick Douglass and have left many illusions about slavery. And if truth is our object, no amount of flowery romance and the personal reminiscence of its protected beneficiaries can keep the world from knowing that slavery was a cruel, dirty, costly, and inexcusable anachronism, which nearly ruined the world's greatest experiment in democracy. No serious and unbiased student can be deceived by the fairy tale of a beautiful southern slave civilization. If those who really had opportunity to know the South before the war wrote the truth, it was a center of widespread ignorance, undeveloped resources, suppressed humanity, and unrestrained passions, with whatever veneer of manners and culture that could lie above these de- these depths." Coming down to the Civil War, how for a moment can anyone who reads the Congressional Globe from 1850 to 1860, the lives of contemporary statesmen and public characters, North and South, the discourses in the newspaper and accounts of meetings and speeches, doubt the Negro slavery was the cause of the Civil War? 
What do we gain by invading this clear fact and talking in vague ways about union and states' rights and differences in civilization that caused that catastrophe? Du Bois, go right after the states' rights. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you want to take a little bit? I would love to. Of all historic facts, there can be none clearer than that for four long and fearful years, the South fought to perpetuate human slavery, and that the nation which rose so bright and fair and died so pure of stain was one which had at perfect right to be ashamed of its birth and glad of its death. Oh, I'm going to read that one more time because it's just so good. Mm -hmm. Of all historic facts, there can be none clearer than that that for four years, long and fearful years, the South fought to perpetuate human slavery, and that the nation which rose so bright and so fair, died so pure of stain, was one that had a perfect right to be ashamed of its birth and glad of its death. Yet one monument in North Carolina achieves the impossibility by recording of Confederate soldiers they died fighting for liberty. Du Bois, I'm sure, would be very proud of everyone pulling down Confederate statues today. Yes. On the other hand, consider the North. (laughs) Yeah. On the other hand, consider the North and the Civil War. Why should we, we be deliberately false, like Woodward in Meet General Grant, and represent the North as a magnanimously freeing the slaves without any effort on his part? The American Negroes are only people in the history of the world, so far as I know, that ever became free without any effort of their own. Whoo! That's a sentence, Woodward. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fucking sentence. They had not started the war nor ended it. Debatable. They twanged banjo. They twanged banjos around the railroad stations, sang melodious spirituals, and believed that some Yankee would soon come along and give each of them forty acres of a land and a mule. Um, no. Yeah, I never want to hear that sentence again. No, not one Just more no. time. Not ever. Yeah, but fuck off. But again, this is the kind of shit that was being taught at the time when Du Bois was writing this, and I don't think it's that far off from what's being taught today. So I think it is very relevant to bring it up. The North went to war without the slightest idea of freeing the slave. We've discussed that. The great majority of Northerners northerners from Lincoln down pledged themselves to protect slavery, and they hated and harried abolitionists. But on the other hand, the thesis which Beale tends to support, that the whole North during and after the war was chiefly interested in making money, is only half true. It was abolition and belief in democracy that gained for a time the upper hand after the war and led led the North in Reconstruction. Business followed abolition in order to maintain the tariff, pay the bonds, and defend the banks. To call this business program, quote-unquote, the program of the North, and ignore abolition is unhistorical. In growing ascendancy for a calculable time was a great moral movement which turned the North from its economic defense of slavery and led to its emancipation. Abolitionists attacked slavery because it was wrong, and their moral battle came cannot be truthfully minimized or forgotten. 
Nor does this fact deny that the majority of Northerners before the war were not abolitionists and that they attacked slavery only in order to win the war and enfranchise the Negro to secure this result. One has but to read the debates in Congress, the state papers from Abraham Lincoln down, to know that the decisive action which ended the Civil War was the emancipation and arming of the black slave. That, as Lincoln said, without the military military help of black freedmen, the war against the South could not have been won. The freedmen, far from being inert recipients of freedom at the hands of philanthropists, furnished 200,000 soldiers in the Civil War, who took part in its nearly 200 battles and skirmishes, and in addition, perhaps 300,000 others as effective laborers and helpers. In proportion to population, more Negroes than whites fought the Civil War. These people withdrawn from the support of the Confederacy with the threat of the withdrawal of millions more made the opposition of the slaveholder useless, useless unless they themselves freed and armed their own slaves. This was exactly what the said, what they had started to do. They were only restrained by realizing that such action removed the very cause for which they began fighting. Yet one would search current American histories almost in vain to find a clear statement or even faint recognition of these perfectly well-authenticated facts. All of this is but preliminary to the kernel of the historic problem with which this book deals, and that is Reconstruction. The course of agreement concerning the attempt to reconstruct and organize the South after the Civil War and emancipation is overwhelming. There is a source, a, chi- a scarce a child in the street that cannot tell you the whole effort was a hideous mistake and that and an unfortunate incident based on ig- ignorance, revenge, and the perverse determination to attempt the impossible. That the history of the United States from 1866 to 1876 is something which the nation ought to be ashamed and which did more to retard and set back the American Negro than anything that has happened to him which at the same time it grievously and wantonly wounded again a part of the nation already hurt to death. True, it is that the Northern history writing just after the war had scant sympathy for the South and wrote ruthlessly of rebels and slave drivers. They had at least excuse of a war psychosis. As a young labor leader, Will Herberg writes, The great traditions of this period, and especially of Reconstruction, are shameless repudiation by the official heirs of Stevens and Sumner. In the last quarter of a century, hardly a single book has appeared consistently compiling or sympathetically interpreting the great ideals of the crusade against slavery, whereas scores and hundreds have dropped from the presses in ignoble exonation of the North in open apology for the Confederacy in a measureless abuse of the radical figures of Reconstruction. The Reconstruction period, as a logical culmination of decades of previous development, has borne the brunt of the reaction. David. Mm-hmm. First of all, we have James Ford Rhodes' History of the United States. Rhodes was trained not as a historian, but as an Ohio businessman. He had no broad formal education. When he had accumulated a fortune, he surrounded himself with the retinue of clerks and proceeded to manufacture a history of the United States by mass production. His method was simple. 
He gathered a vast number of authorities. He selected from these authorities those whose testimony supported his thesis, and he discarded the others. Brilliant research technique, Rhodes. Um, the majority report of great Ku Klux investigation, for instance, he laid aside in favor of the minority report simply because the latter supported his sincere belief. In the report and testimony of the Reconstruction Committee of 15, he did practically the same thing. Above all, he begins his inquiry convinced, without admitting any necessity of investigation, that Negroes are an inferior race. No large policy in our country has ever been so conspicuous as a, fail a failure as that of forcing universal Negro suffrage upon the South. Oh, great. Now the South is a victim of, of black people voting. And, of course, that excludes the black people. You know, mm -hmm. um, the Negroes who simply acted out their nature were not to blame. How indeed did they acquire political honesty? What idea could barbarism thrust into slavery obtain of the rights of property? From the Republican policy came no real good to the Negroes. Most of them developed no political capacity, and the few who raised themselves above the mass did not reach a high order of intelligence. Rhodes was primarily the historian of property, of economic history, and the labor movement. He knew nothing of democratic government. He was contemptuous. He was trained to make profits. He used his profits to write history. He speaks again and again of the rulership of intelligence and property, and he makes a plea that intelligent use of the ballot for the benefit of property is the only real foundation of democracy, for the benefit of property, of course. Um the real frontal attack on Reconstruction, as interpreted by the leaders of national thought in 1870 and for some time thereafter, came from the universities and particularly from Columbia and Johns Hopkins. The movement began with Columbia University and with the advent of John W. Burgess of Tennessee and William A. Dunning of New Jersey as professors of political science and history. Burgess was an ex-Confederate soldier who started to a little Southern college with a box of books, a box of tallow candles, and a Negro boy. And his attitude toward the Negro race in years after was subtly colored by this early conception of Negroes as essentially property like books and candles. Dunning was a kindly and impressive professor who was deeply influenced by a growing group of young Southern students and began with them to rewrite the history of the nation from 1860 to 1880 in more or less conscious opposition to the classic interpretations of New England. Burgess was frank and determined in his anti-Negro thought. He expounded his theory of Nordic supremacy, which colored all his political theories. The claim that there is nothing in the color of the skin from the point of view of political ethics is a great sophism. And this is this is a, a road or a uh, Burgess quote. A black skin means membership in a race of men who has never itself succeeded in subjecting passion to reason, has never therefore created any civilization of any kind. To put such a race of men in possession of a state government in a system of federal government is to trust them with the development of a political and legal civilization upon which the most important subjects of human life and to do this in the communities of, with a large white population is simply to establish barbarism in power over civilization. Again, just absurd, absurd white supremacy coming forth. Um. Burgess is a Tory and an open apostle of reaction. He tells us that the nation now believes that it is the white man's mission, his duty, and his right to hold the reins of political power in his own hands for the civilization of the world and the welfare of mankind. 
For this reason, America is following the European idea of duty of civilized races to impose their political sovereignty upon civilized or half-civilized or not fully civilized races anywhere and everywhere in the world. Again, the oldest of subtler colonial myths popping back up because the parallels never end. Um, here, he complacently believes that there is something natural in the subordination of an inferior race to a superior race, even to the point of enslavement of the inferior race. But there is nothing natural in the opposite. He therefore denominates Reconstruction as the rule of the uncivilized Negroes over the whites of the South. This has been the teaching of one of our greatest universities for nearly 50 years. Dunning was less dogmatic as a writer, and his own statements are often judicious. But even Dunning can declare that all the forces in the South that made for civilization were dominated by a mass of laborious freedmen, and that the antithesis and antipathy of race and its color were crucial and ineradicable. The word to not eradicate, I struggle with that one. <laughs> um, the work of most of the students whom he taught and encouraged have been one-sided and partisan to the last degree. Johns, Hop Johns Hopkins University has issued a series of studies similar to Columbia's. Southern teachers have been welcomed to many northern universities where often Negro students have been systemically discouraged, and thus a nationwide university attitude has arisen to which propaganda against the Negro has been carried on unquestioned. Wow, you eliminate the voices that could speak against it, and weirdly you have one-sided results. Just bananas. Weird. Um, the Columbia School of Historians yeah. and Social Investigators have issued between 1895 and the present time 16 studies of reconstruction in the southern states, all based on the same thesis and all done according to the same method. First, endless sympathy with the white South. Second, ridicule, contempt, or silence for the Negro. Third, a judicial attitude towards the North which concludes that the North, under great misapprehension, did a grievous wrong, but eventually saw its mistake and retreated. These studies vary, of course, in their methods. Dunning's own work is usually silent so far as the Negro is concerned. Burgess is more than fair in law, but reactionary in manners of race and property. Regarding the treatment of a Negro as a man and no, as nothing less than a crime, and admitting that the, man, the mainstay of property is the court's. In the books on Reconstruction written by graduates of these universities and others, the studies of Texas, North Carolina, Florida, Virginia, and Louisiana are thoroughly bad, giving no complete picture of what happened during Reconstruction, <laughs> written for the most part by men and women without broad historical or social background, and all designed not to seek the truth, but to prove a thesis. Hamilton reaches the climax of this school when he characterizes the black codes, which even Burgess condemned as not only on the whole reprehensible, temperate, and kindly, but in the mainstay no, necessary. Uh, yeah, on the whole reasonable and, and temperate, it's like, fuck off, man. They're the fuck black off. codes. Thompson's quote-unquote Georgia is another case in point. It seeks to be fair, but silly stories about Negroes indicating utter lack or even of even common sense are included, and every noble sentiment from white people. Advertisements, when two Negro workers, William and Jim, put a straightforward advertisement in a local paper, the author says it was evidently written by a white friend. 
There is not the slightest historical evidence to prove this. And there was plenty of educated Negroes in Augusta at the time who might have written this. Lawn's Louisiana put Sheridan's words in Sherman's mouth to prove a petty point. There are certain of these studies which, through, though influenced by the same general attitude, nevertheless have much more of a scientific poise and cultural background. Garner's Reconstruction of Mississippi conceives that Negroes as an integral part of the scene and treats them as human, a human being. With this should be bracketed the recent study of Reconstruction in South Carolina by Simpkins and Woody. This is not as fair as Garner's, but in the midst of con- conventional judgment and conclusions and reproductions of all v- available caricatures of Negroes, it does not hesitate to give a fair account of the Negroes and of some of their work. It gives the impression of combining in one book two antagonistic points of view, but in the clash of much truth emerges. Ficklin's Louisiana and the works of Fleming are anti-Negro in spirit, but nevertheless, they have a certain fairness and sense of historic honesty. Fleming's documentaries of history of reconstruction is done by a man who has done a thesis to support is done by a man who has a thesis to support and his selection of documents supports the thesis. His study of Alabama is pure propaganda. Next come a number of books which are openly and blatantly propaganda, like Herbert's Solid South and the books by Pike and Reynolds on South Carolina. The works by Pollard and Carpenter, and especially those by Ulrich Phillips, one of the latest and most popular of the series is The Tragic Era by Claude Browers, which is an excellent and readable piece of current newspaper reporting, absolutely devoid of historical judgment or sociological knowledge. It is a classic example of historical propaganda of the cheaper sort. I love it. We I really l- do. I, I really do enjoy Du Bois just venting. Oh, no, it's, it's great when he vent. just goes He's off. So- when he just goes off, it's so good. We have the books like Michelin's Age of Hate and Winston's Andrew Johnson, which attempt to rewrite the characters of Andrew Johnson. They certainly add to our knowledge of the man and our sympathy of his weaknesses, but they cannot, for students, change the calm testimony of the unshaken historical facts. Fuse's Carl Schurz, you long-winded bastard, show that he was quite wrong in what he said and what he saw in the South. The chief witnesses in Reconstruction, the emancipated slave himself, have been almost barred from the court. His written Reconstruction record has been largely destroyed and nearly always neglected. Only three or four states have preserved the debates in the Reconstruction conventions. There are few biographies of black leaders. The Negro is refused a hearing because he was poor and ignorant. It is therefore assumed that all Negroes in Reconstruction were ignorant and silly, and that therefore a history of Reconstruction in any state can quite ignore him. The result is that the most unfair caricatures of Negroes have been carefully preserved. But serious speeches, successful administration, and upright character are almost universally ignored and forgotten. Wherever a black head rise to historic view, it is promptly slayed by an adjective, shrewd, notorious, cunning, or pilloried by a sneer, or put out of view by some quite unproven charge of bad moral character. In other words, every effort has been made to treat the Negro's part in Reconstruction with silence and contempt. 
When recently a student tried to write on education in Florida, he found that the official records of the excellent administration of the colored superintendent of education, Gibbs, who virtually established the Florida public school, had been destroyed. Alabama has tried to obliterate all printed records of Reconstruction. Especially noticeable is the fact that little attempt has been made to trace carefully the rise in economic development of the poor whites and their relation to the planters and to Negro labor after the war. There were 5 million or more non-slaveholding whites in the South in 1860, and less than 2 million in the families of all slaveholders. Yet one might almost gather from contemporary history that 5 million left no history and had no descendants. The extraordinary history of the rise and triumph of the poor whites has been largely neglected, even by Southern white students. David. The whole development of Reconstruction was primarily an economic development, but no economic history or proper material for it has been written. It has been regarded as a purely political matter and of politics most naturally divorced from industry. All of this is reflected in the textbooks of the day and in the encyclopedias until we have got to the place where we cannot use our experiences during and after the Civil War for the uplift and enlightenment of mankind. We have spoiled and misconceived the position of the historian. If we were going in the future, not simply with regard to the one question, but with regard to all social problems, to be able to use human experience for the guidance of mankind, we have got clearly to distinguish between fact and desire. In the first place, somebody in each era must make clear the facts with utter disregard to his own wish and desire and belief. What we've got to know, so far as it is possible, are the things that actually happened in the world. Then, with that much clear and open to every reader, the philosopher and prophet has a chance to interpret these facts. But the historian has no right, posing as scientist, to conceal or distort facts. And until we distinguish between these two functions of the chronicler of human action, we're going to render it easy for a muddled world out of sheer ignorance to make the same mistake ten times over. Quote-unquote mistake. Um, one is astonished in the study of history at the recurrence of the idea that evil must be forgotten, distorted, skimmed over. We must not remember that Daniel Webster got drunk, but only remember that he was a splendid constitutional lawyer. We must forget that George Washington was a slave owner, or that Thomas Jefferson had mulatto children, or that Alexander Hamilton had Negro blood, and simply remember the things we regard as credible and inspiring. You know, you this is you bring this shit up today. I feel like this is stuff that people just opened up to in the last ten years. And Boyce was railing on this in the thirties. In the thirties, what the fuck, people? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this has been in print for like 90 years and all of a sudden this is the new wokeness and, and up until then, you know, the sons of, of rich Puerto Rican exploiters were writing plays, absolving these people, but yeah, you know, whatever. It's just, just new woke culture. It's definitely not historical chronicling. Um, the difficulty, of course, with this philosophy is that history loses its value as an incentive and example. It paints perfect men and noble nations, but it does not tell the truth. No one reading the history of the United States during 1850 to 1860 can have the slightest doubt left in his mind that Negro slavery was the cause of civil war. And yet during and since we learn that a great nation murdered thousands and destroyed millions 
on account of abstract doctrines concerning the nation, nature of the federal union. Since the attitude of the nation concerning states' rights has been revolutionized by the development of the central government since the war, the whole argument becomes an astonishing reductio ad absurdum, leaving us apparently with no cause for the Civil War except the recent reiteration of statements which make the great public men on one side narrow, hypocritical fanatics and liars, while the leaders on the other side were extraordinary and unexampled for their beauty, unselfishness, and fairness." Not a single great leader of the nation during the Civil War and Reconstruction has escaped attack and libel. The magnificent figures of Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens have been besmirched almost beyond recognition. We have been cajoling and flattering the South and slurring the North because the South is determined to rewrite history of slavery and the North is not interested in history but in wealth. This, then, is the book basis upon which today we judge Reconstruction. In order to paint the South as a martyr to inescapable fate, to make the North the magnanimous emancipator, and to ridicule the Negro as the impossible joke in the whole development, we have in 50 years, by libel, innuendo, and silence, so completely misstated and obliterated the history of the Negro in America and his relation to its work and government that today it is almost unknown. This may be fine romance, but it is not science. It may be inspiring, but it is certainly not truth. And beyond this, it is dangerous. It is not only part foundation of our uh, present lawlessness and loss of democratic ideals. It has more than that led to a world to embrace and worship the color bar as a social salvation, and it is helping to range mankind in ranks of mutual hatred and contempt at the summons of a cheap and false myth. Nearly that all, all books being on said, no, don't you keep going. Oh, okay. That all being said, we are going to end it here for this week. Yes, we are within breathing distance of the end, gang. Uh, this next episode we do will be the last episode we do on black reconstruction in America. I can tell you that much now definitively. Um, and we will, we will have our closing remarks and our closing, uh, statements on, on this long and important work. Um, Mm -hmm. that being said, this is where we are going to end it for this week. Uh, next week will be the last episode. So <laughs> brace yourself. Anyone that's been going through this in real time, we're, we're there. We're at the end. Um, but that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. There are a number of different ways you can get a hold of us, one of which is email. You can email us at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Another way you can get a hold of us is on Twitter. We're at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. And the most direct way you can get a hold of us is through Discord, uh, because Nathan is on Discord 24 uh, 7, and David is on Discord when he is summoned, and Nathan will summon him when he's needed. So one of us will always be there, essentially. Uh, our Discord is linked in our Twitter bio. You can also email us for the uh, link to that if you do not use Twitter and you're a better person than I am. Um, but that being said, discord is a great community it's a group of people that i'm very proud to be a part of and proud to support um there are a number of different people in there that are active all the time uh and it's just a great place to bounce ideas off of if you have organizing questions ask organizing questions within 
Um, there is a book club going. They have currently finished uh, their first two works, but they are working on Caliban and the Witch right now. Uh, and there is also a very thriving Final Fantasy XIV community if you play the best MMO on the history of the planet, in which case you can join us there. That being said, David, it is time for a disclaimer. It sure is time for a disclaimer. So uh, long ago, the last time we read a, a very, very long book, and it was much more summarized than this one, uh, Nathan had come up to me and been like, hey, we should read Capital together, because that's not a book you read by yourself. It's a book of theory. You need to discuss the context, um, make sure you're getting the most out of it, tie it back to, to you know, um, today and what it means to you. And so he said, okay, we can read it together, but, you know, I mean, and, and it was his suggestion, but we only had a group of two. And so we went, sure, why not? Let's record and uh, let's see if we can make this group a little bigger. And ever since then, the vision was, you know, hopefully uh, you're out there in any, some kind of party, some kind of organization um, doing on the ground work. And in your reading group, your political education group on the side of it, you're reading these works along with us. And what we can do then is be complimentary, be another voice, another source of input and context and things in those groups. Um, let's say, you know, you're not doing that, but your group, your political education group, your reading group in your organization is reading something shorter or reading something that's more focused on a specific thing you're organizing around. Um, and you're reading these on your own. Hopefully we can be that reading group and we can help you with the context. We can help you get the most out of it and fully understand it so that you have a reading group to these books. And let's say that's not happening. Let's say, you know, you're having trouble reading this, you need a little help. And whether it's, you know, word for word, um, kind of an enhanced ebook like we do here with, with reconstruction or like we did in capital and, and several other works where it's kind of a summary, whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want these works out there guiding your action. And when you drive these works into revolutionary action, um, mutual aid, politically educating other people, anything like that, that's called praxis. That's theory in action and praxis does not exist without theory since it is theory and action without that praxis this theory is completely useless they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen as always that being said this has been mark's madness pod we read books my name is nathan my name's david and we will talk to y'all next week bye